Yeah, you can be seated. Welcome to Life Church this morning. Church, we're glad that you're here with us today. Glad to welcome you with us. We don't know one another. My name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're in the room physically with us or joining us online via our live stream, I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your device, I'd love it if you would go ahead and find that. We're just walking through the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient city of Philippi. We call that Philippians. Um, and so that's where we're going to be hanging out today. I think you'll be served well if you can get that in front of you some way or another. That's where we'll jump in in just a moment. Um, there's a famous Swiss theologian from 100 years ago um, who wrote, his name is Karl Barth, he wrote, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. There are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. Now, there are a lot of things that Karl Barth said that I don't particularly agree with, and so he's not somebody who I'd like send you to do your morning devotionals in the writing of Karl Barth. I feel like I need to make a point of saying that this morning, but about this particular statement, um, I think he is spot on, and I agree wholeheartedly and completely. What Barth is saying, what he means is that every New Testament letter, and there are at least 22 of them, maybe a few more depending on how you count letters, Um, But every New Testament letter, it is evidence of the fact that churches have issues. And you know what? We're glad to hear somebody like Bart say that. But the honest truth is that if you've been in a church, you also know that churches have issues. Your own experience confirms the fact that churches have issues. The simple truth is that every church has issues because every church is made up of people. And people have issues. I have issues. You have issues, and we bring our issues into our relationships with one another in a local church, and lo and behold, what you're left with is a church full of issues, and so our experience confirms what Bart has said. No one has ever found the perfect problem-free church, and no one ever will find the perfect problem-free church this side of heaven, and that's just as well because even if you happen to stumble on that perfect problem-free church well, you wouldn't be welcome there because you are not perfect and problem-free. And your problems would immediately cause problems in that church. And so we just have to own it, right? Churches have issues because people have issues. Despite these issues, we find that the message of the New Testament consistently commends us to be united. The message of the New Testament consistently urges us as a church with issues full of people with issues, to be united with one another despite our many issues. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's our unity as a church that is critical to our mission as a church. Let me just pick one of many verses that suggest that. This is John chapter 17. Jesus himself is praying. Scholars call this Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the prayer that he prays for us As he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, a mere moments or mere hours before he's betrayed by Judas and then arrested and ultimately crucified. So in the last hours of Jesus' life, Jesus, he spends those hours in prayer. What does he pray for? Well, listen to one of the things that he prays for in John 17, starting in verse 20. He says to his father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, 
these only in that verse refers to the disciples who are surrounding Jesus as he prays this. Right? He's talking about like the 12 or 11 maybe at this point in time who are with him. He says, I'm not praying only for these. I'm praying also for those who will believe in me through their words. So through their teaching, through their ministry, through their writing. I'm praying for the people who are going to come to faith in me because of their ministry. Which means in the last hours of his life, Jesus is praying for you and for me. Because we are among the people who have come to believe in him through the word, through the ministry of his disciples. What does Jesus pray for us in those last moments of his life? He prays, verse 21, that they, talking about us now, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that's stunning. Right? Jesus prays that we would be one in a way that resembles the way he is in his Father and the Father is in him. That we would be one, that we would be unified in a way that resembles the perfect unity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit as they have existed in sweet and intimate fellowship with one another since before the foundation of the earth. Jesus prays that our unity would look like their unity. And then I want you to hear the logic of it. Why is that unity so critical, he says? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, our unity gives evidence of or testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is sent of the Father, the one and only Son, sent to live a perfect life and die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. That's why unity in the church matters so much. That's why it's so critical to our mission. Because that unity in the church, it testifies to the reality of who Jesus claimed to be. Unity. It's critical. It's precious. And that's why I think the passage that's before us this morning, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, is such an important passage. These verses... They lay out for us a path toward unity in our relationships with one another in a local church. And certainly first and foremost on Paul's mind as he writes this is unity within the Philippian church. But even as he says these things, these are things that testify to how we can have unity in our marriages, in our families, with Christian brothers and sisters when we find ourselves in disagreement or in conflict with them. The road that Paul paves here towards unity in these verses is a road that all of us are striving to walk on if we call ourselves followers of Christ. That's why this is such a precious and critical passage. Let me read it for us this morning, then I'll pray, and then we'll walk through it together. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Church, this is the word for us. Church, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word, for these words, and for the opportunities that we have today to shape our lives according to them. We pray that you would help us to do that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what is true in these words this morning. That we might order our lives around them, that we might find you to be beautiful as you reveal yourself in these things. Yeah, help us now, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the roadmap for you as we walk through these four verses together. In verse 1, we're going to consider the basis for the church's unity. In verse 2, the command toward the church's unity. And then together in verses 3 and 4, I'll call that the key to unity in the church, or to the church's unity. And so we're looking at the basis, the command, and then the key to our unity so that you know what's ahead of us now. Let's start with the basis for our unity. To understand verse 1, and how it fits into verse 2, we have to begin with a basic grammar lesson. Um, Verses 1 and 2 together, they represent what my 7th grade English teacher would have taught me was a conditional statement. Now, you might be familiar with conditional statements. You probably use them even if you don't know the grammatical term that describes them. In our language, in English, almost always conditional statements are if-then statements, right? And so you have a condition, and if that condition is satisfied, then whatever is the result of that condition must also be true. And so if you think that your pastor is ruggedly handsome, then you maybe ought to consider taking him to lunch after the service. That's how the logic of a conditional statement works. Nobody laughed at that in the first service either. I just want you to know that I still said it anyway because I don't care. Um, If something is true, then this other thing must also be true. But here's the thing about conditional statements. Sometimes we use them when they're not actually conditional. And so, for example, I can say to my youngest two children, if you would like me to read Harry Potter to you tonight, then you need to clean your room and get ready for bed. And when I say that, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that my younger two children do want me to read Harry Potter to them tonight. There is no doubt in my mind that the condition is absolutely and certainly true. And so when I say that, what I really actually mean is because you would like me to read Harry Potter to you tonight, then you ought to go and clean your room. And that is just one of the ways that we use conditional statements in our language and in the ancient Greek language of the New Testament because that's what Paul is doing here in verses 1 and 2. It seems like on a certain level he's making a conditional statement. But the simple reality is that he is not at all because Paul knows that the conditions of this statement are true. They've been satisfied. They have been met. There is no doubt in his mind that that is the case because the conditions that he lists here are each and every one of them privileges of the gospel. These are things, these are realities, these are truths that are true for anyone who has turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus by faith. And Paul knows that the Philippians have. He knows that these people are brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows that they are walking with the Lord. He's confident of this. And so when he speaks this language of conditionality, it's not really conditional at all. He knows that these things are true. What are the conditions? Well, look, first, in verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
And I think what he specifically has in mind there is the encouragement that comes to us through our union with Christ. Those two words, in Christ, are the clue to me that that's what Paul is talking about here. Anytime you see, especially the Apostle Paul, talking about the fact that we are in Christ, he's talking about the mystical, spiritual, but true union between Jesus and every believer in Jesus, in which every believer in Jesus is somehow mysteriously in Christ, and Christ is somehow mysteriously in them. This union with Christ, it means that whatever is true for Jesus is also true for us. What is true of Jesus' future especially is true for us. What is true of Jesus' present is somehow mysteriously true for us. And what's true of Jesus' past is somehow mysteriously true for us as well. And so because Christ has died and been crucified, those who are in Christ mysteriously are dead to sin. Because Christ has been raised to new life through the resurrection, through the resurrection, those who are in Christ are mysteriously somehow already raised to new lives themselves. And because Christ is presently seated at the right hand of the throne of God, believers in Jesus will always and forever have access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. What could be a more encouraging reality, brothers and sisters? To know that there is a union between us and Jesus that gives us perpetual forever access to the very presence of God. That's a reality for every believer, and Paul points to it here. He says, if you've been encouraged by your union with Christ, and what he really means is because you've been encouraged by your union with Christ. But he's not done there. He says, if there's any comfort from love, and again, he's talking here about Christ's love for his church And he knows that the Philippians have been comforted by this love. He knows that they've considered the profound love of a Savior who laid down his life willingly for them. He knows that these believers have have understood and comprehended the height and depth and width and length of this love. And he knows that they've found comfort in it. He knows that these believers have participation in the Spirit. That's the third thing that he lists here. He knows that's true because it's true for all believers. For all believers, we become acceptable dwelling places for the Holy Spirit of God. And so though in ourselves we are marked by sin and wrecked by sin, God cleanses us in such a way that his very holy, pure spirit can come and dwell in us so that believers in Jesus do, all of us have participation in his spirit. And he adds lastly, if you have any affection and sympathy In other words, if you have truly processed and understood the heart of Christ for you, he is not unkind and oppressive. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He has affection for you and sympathy for you in your struggles. Paul says if any of these things are true, and of course they're true, because each and every one is true for those who are truly in Christ. Therefore, And he moves to the command, complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so this is the command that he urges the Philippian church and us to obey because of the rich privileges in the gospel that we have, which he enumerates for us in verse 1. Let's think about this command here in verse 2. Complete my joy by being, and we can just summarize, by being 
united, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. We'll talk about what that phrase means in a minute. And being of one mind. What I want you to notice this morning is that the unity that Paul is encouraging us to have here, it's a unity both of conviction and affection. Right? It's a unity of conviction. There is truth in view in this unity, right? That's why he tells the Philippians to be of the same mind and to have one mind, right? He, he wants them to apply their minds toward this unity. He wants them to have a shared vision in their minds of something that will unify them. But it's not just a unity of conviction. It's also a unity in their hearts of, of affection, which is why he says that he wants them to have the same love. He wants their loves to be united. He wants them to love the same thing and to be in full accord. Now, that's a weird phrase. It doesn't mean very much to me when I read that phrase in English. And that's because it's a difficult phrase in Greek to translate into English. The Greek there literally says something like to be fellow souled. In other words, to in some way to share a soul with one another. But the point is that these are like internal realities, right? Affections and loves that Paul is driving at. And so he wants them to have the same mind, but he also wants them to have the same heart. He wants them to think toward the same things, to have the same vision intellectually, but also to have the same love affectionately. Now, what is that vision? What is that love? What convictions and affections does Paul have in mind as he says these things? Well, surely it's the gospel. Surely it's Jesus. He says here that the Philippians will complete his joy if they are one in these things. And he's used that word already in this letter. If we go back to chapter 1, he says that he's always prayed for the Philippians with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. And so that partnership in the gospel has begun and given him joy. And now Paul wants his joy to be complete or finished as the Philippians grow into those gospel truths. And so, Paul, he wants the Philippians to set their minds on the truths of Christ and him crucified. And he wants them to set their hearts on the truths of Christ and him crucified. He wants them to be united because they prioritize the truth of the gospel and because they love Jesus and his gospel above all else. The gospel is to be the source of their unity. It's about the gospel that they are to have one mind and one love to be fellow souled, to be thinking and feeling in the same direction. The gospel is the source of their unity. And, and as we say that, it's important for us to recognize the fact that unity in itself is not a distinctly Christian idea, nor is it necessarily a virtuous idea. I mean, there are a lot of places that you can go in the world where you find people unified around a lot of really terrible things. I imagine you could have walked the streets of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and felt a great measure of unity directed in a very terrible direction. I imagine you could go next door, right now perhaps, to the gym that sits on the other side of that wall through there, and you would find a lot of people who are unified around something that's not necessarily super awesome, right? Like people who have this vision for and love for like a future version of themselves that measures up to whatever standard they want to achieve, and you might find a great deal of unity there, but it's not necessarily a virtuous unity, and it's certainly not a distinctly Christian unity. And when the Bible talks about unity, it's a very specific kind of unity. It's not a unity that comes because people in a church 
look like one another or dress like one another or talk like one another. It's not a unity that comes because people in a church all happen to agree on the same things politically or socially. It's not a unity that comes because people in a church have the same kind of background or all sit in the same socioeconomic group. It's not a unity based on any of those things. It's a unity that is simply and purely and entirely based on the fact that the people in that church have set their minds on Christ and love Christ together. And friends, it's critical in this day and age that we embrace this truth because, I mean, you feel just as I feel, I'm sure, that the world we are living in is increasingly divided and polarized about any number of things. We're divided about so many things. And so many things present opportunities to divide even us as as life church, right? There, There are things that we encounter that could rip us apart. Like the world is just so divided. But in that division, there is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to see the truth and the power of the gospel. Let, let me just like explain. I'll, I'll illustrate what I mean here for a moment. So in the past couple of weeks, I've had face-to-face conversations with people who are members of our church family, who are deeply committed biblically formed, well-rooted in scripture people. And I remember looking face-to-face with this one guy who was talking about the upcoming election. And he said to me, he said, James, I'll be honest. I just don't, don't have, I just can't understand how Christians could, could possibly vote for the Republican nominee for president. And he's saying that out of his biblically formed, deeply rooted convictions, right? He's, he's thinking about what scripture says, and he's thinking about the Republican candidate for president, and he says, I just don't understand how anybody could vote for that guy. And then a couple of weeks later, I was sitting down with somebody else who also has deeply rooted, biblically formed convictions, who was saying the exact opposite, saying, man, I just don't understand how somebody with Christian conviction can vote for the Democratic candidate for president. And I say that not because I intend to shape the way that you're going to vote on November 3rd or before on any level, but simply to illustrate that that is one of many issues around which we could, as a church body, divide. And there are many issues like that, right? We probably are divided on issues of race and racial equality. We probably are divided on like our understanding of the significance of COVID-19 and how best to respond to that as a people. We are divided on a whole host of other issues. And so those divisions, they are real and they threaten our unity as a church. But they are also, brothers and sisters, an opportunity for us to testify to the power of the gospel which unites us despite those divisions. My daughter, Elliot, she has this very fine, very long, very beautiful blonde hair. And it's like this incredible thin, incredibly thin, and it just winds up everywhere, right? So like regularly I'll be sitting like in a chair and I'll find Elliot's hair like in my shirt. Um, obviously she gets this beautiful hair from me, right? Um, but I'll just find it like in, in all of my stuff. The other night I opened a book from, that was sitting on my nightstand and, and I opened the book and, and right there on the first page that I opened to was one of Elliot's hairs. I just find these hairs everywhere, which is kind of a mystery to me. I don't understand that necessarily unless she's like rubbing her head on all of my stuff all the time. But when Elliot was really small, like when she was three years old, four years old, she's almost 10 now, but when she was three or four years old, 
um, she, uh, she, uh, one way that I could always get a laugh out of her was if I took a balloon and I rubbed that balloon on my shirt and then I held that balloon up near her head and made all of her blonde hair stand on end, right, because of the static electrical charge in the balloon, right? Like I could just, every time, like I could get her to cackle with glee about that. Now she would roll her eyes if I did it, and I'm definitely going to get some grief from her later for talking about this at all this morning. But um, when she was four, like every single time, she loved that. I just want you to think about that picture for a minute. Elliot's hair and this balloon in my hand. And the fact that when they are charged by static electricity, those two things are drawn together. Now, static electricity, it's a real power, but it is an invisible power until it brings those two things together. In the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a real power, but an invisible power until it brings otherwise divided people together. Right? It's a real power, but an invisible power until the world sees that people who are going to vote for this guy and for this guy can love one another. Until the world sees the people who think this about COVID-19 and this about COVID-19, people who come from this kind of background and this kind of background, it brings them together. And when it brings us together, then the world can see that the gospel has real and true power. Which is why I say that our division culturally is actually an opportunity for us spiritually to testify more genuinely and truly to the truth and the power of the gospel. One of my favorite things that's ever been written about the church is written by the Canadian theologian D.A. Carson. I told you earlier, don't do your devotions in Bart. Absolutely do your devotions in Carson. This is what he says about the church. I just love this. He says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, amen, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation. It's a word that just means a group of people who are like-minded. Right? Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, and here's the line that is love. It says, in this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Can you imagine how true and beautiful and powerful the gospel would be seen to be if we, a whole bunch of natural enemies, loved one another for Jesus' sake? In this divided and polarized time, if we said those divisions don't matter nearly as much as our shared allegiance to Jesus matters, can you imagine what our witness would look like if we lived like that, if we were this band of natural-born enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake? I just long for that. 
And one more thing here on verse 2. Like, notice that Paul says, complete my joy by being united. Right now, if I'm Paul and I'm like rotting in a Roman prison cell, I'd say something like, complete my joy by helping me escape from this place. Complete my joy by securing my release from this place. Complete my joy by changing my circumstances. But that's not what Paul says. Right? The thing that's going to give Paul joy is not release from prison. It's not any kind of change in his circumstances. The thing that's going to complete Paul's joy is the Philippians being united. I just think that's incredible. In the same way that a parent, like their emotional well-being is enhanced when their children are thriving. Right? In the same way that a parent like is like flying with sail in their wind, uh, wind in their sails when their children are doing well in life. Like a good pastor, like his joy is complete when his people are thriving spiritually. Paul says that here of the Philippians. And church, I want you to know I say the same thing of you. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, sharing the same love, being fellow souls with one another, and of one mind with one another. Complete my joy through our unity, Life Church. That's the command for unity. What's the key to unity? That's the last thing here. How do we do this? In other words, how do we possibly have this kind of unity? That's the question that Paul answers in verses 3 and 4. He says, I'll read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what's the key? What's the one thing that is absolutely necessary for us to walk in unity together as a bunch of natural-born enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake? Well, that key is humility. The ancient Greeks didn't have a word in their dictionary like the word humility. They, they just didn't understand it, didn't care about the idea at all, so they didn't even name it. The ancient Romans, like the people that Paul has, has grown up among, um, they had a word for humility, but you can read all of the Roman literature that exists still today. Like everything, Romans like Cicero and those kind of dudes wrote down. And you will never once find humility described as a virtue until Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the form of a servant and modeled humility for us. Humility genuinely is a uniquely Christian virtue. It wasn't popular in his day. It wasn't desired in his day. It's not popular in our day either. But it is something that is necessary if we were to walk in unity with one another. Note Paul's definition of humility. He says in verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. In other words, don't try to exalt yourself. Try to exalt other people. Don't try to serve yourself. Serve other people. Then in verse 4, he adds to that, don't look only to your own interests, but also love and care about and even prioritize the interests of others. It's because of these two verses that, that often people have said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. It's instead of focusing on your needs and your desires and your interests, focusing on the needs and desires and interests of other people. 
Humility is making what others want and need the priority. And friends, that's the fertile soil in which a unified church can grow. Which means for the good of our own souls, for the good of our church, and for our mission in the world, we're people who should strive to grow in unity. We should fight for unity. We talked about this this week, and Matt Perez, he rightly pointed out the fact that like, no church drifts towards unity. Right? There's no church that just suddenly finds itself unified one day. If we're going to be unified, we have to fight for it. How do we fight for it? Well, we fight for humility. We try to walk in humility with one another. But that's tricky. There's a slippery slope here when we think about trying to walk in humility for the sake of unity. Because you probably know this from your own experience, from your own life, but like the second you try to make progress in humility is the second you undo any progress you have towards humility, right? Because imagine how that works. You're, you're thinking to yourself, I really want to be humble, and so I'm going to work hard to be humble, and then you kind of take a look at how you're doing, and you say, man, I, I feel like I've been really humble lately, which is a very unhumble thing to say. And so you can't look at humility and try to run towards humility. That, that just does not work. And so how is it that we can pursue humility? How is it that we can fight for humility? Well, let me offer us, as we, we start to turn our thoughts towards the Lord's Supper this morning, let me offer us six ways that we can pursue humility. And I want to be very clear that I'm offering these not as someone who is an expert in any of them. Not as someone who has humility figured out and down pat but as somebody who needs God's grace in this area just as much as anyone else does. How can we pursue humility? First, we pursue humility by reflecting upon the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. That's when Jesus came as the second person of the Trinity, as the God-man, when he came in human form, Paul will say in just a couple of verses. When we think about the incarnation, we see in the incarnation a model of humility that moves us toward humility. Jesus, he was the high king of heaven. From him and through him and to him, everything exists. Yet he came to earth constrained by the limits of our flesh, constrained by the limits of humanity. He set aside his divine power and his divine status in order to walk among us. The author of life, he wrote himself into the story of his creation. The master artisan painted himself into the portrait of humanity. The infinite God became the infant God man. And it is in the incarnation of Jesus that we see an unthinkable and profound humility. And when we reflect on that humility, our hearts will be stirred towards humility as well. And that's why Paul goes in the very next verse to talk about that very thing. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself of his divine status and privilege and power. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When we reflect on the incarnation, we will be moved towards humility ourselves. 
Secondly, to pursue humility, we should think often about the cross of Christ. Now, the cross of Christ, it's a stunning expression of Christ's love for us. Jesus loved us so much that he chose to lay down his life for us, and that is stirring and comforting and wonderful. We should also recognize the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ is a pretty stunning indictment of how bad we are apart from grace. Right? Our sin problem had to be really serious if the only way the God of heaven could satisfy our sin problem was to send his only son to die on our place. And so when we think about the cross of Christ, we, we think about the fact that, yes, we're so loved that Jesus chose to die for us, but we were so bad that he had to die for us. As we set our minds on that truth, that is a deeply and profoundly humbling truth. Our sin, it required, it demanded the substitutionary sacrifice of the only son of God. If we think upon this often, it will impress upon us a deep and abiding humility. Thirdly, if we're pursuing humility, we should pray. Pride, the opposite of humility, manifests itself always in prayerlessness. Humility always manifests itself through prayer. See, prayer, it means acknowledging that we are insufficient, but that God is sufficient. Prayer, it requires us to acknowledge that we are weak, but that God is strong. That's why prideful people cannot pray, while humble people cannot not pray. So if you want to grow in humility, grow in prayer. Fourthly, if we want to grow in humility, we should regularly confess and repent of sin publicly. By publicly, I don't mean by a one-page ad in the Salisbury Post or by, you know, live tweeting your confession. But I simply mean that humble people are people who regularly open up to and acknowledge to others about their brokenness and their sin. Right? They're people who regularly confess their sin to one another and who repent of that sin before one another. They're people who make no pretense about who they are. They're people who are open and honest about their weakness. Proud people, they hate it when people acknowledge and understand their weakness. But humble people are eager to celebrate their weaknesses before others and to turn from it in grace. Fifthly, if we want to grow in humility, we should serve others. We should, as Paul has said here, look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others by serving others. We should strive to meet their needs. We shouldn't wait for them to ask. We should preemptively reach out and do what we can do for them. We should find physical and tangible ways to count them more significant than ourselves as we seek to grow in humility. And then lastly this morning, we should meditate on the glory of Christ. What I hope you'll understand is that at its very root, the battle against pride, the battle for humility, is a struggle to rightly situate our awe. In other words, it's a struggle to rightly answer the question, what is really awesome and what is really glorious? Proud people, deep inside, want to believe that they are awesome and they want other people to agree. Humble people, 
deep inside have come to the painful realization that we are not awesome. And that only happens when we come face to face with who really is. That only happens when we come face to face with the glory of Jesus. Because when we see him for who he is and when we see him as he is, that displaces any false, silly notion that we have it going on. I mean, that's the thing that Paul immediately moves to as Philippians 2 continues, stealing my own thunder, the passage that we're going to look at next week. But he says, you know, he celebrates the incarnation of Jesus in verses 6 and 7. He celebrates the crucifixion of Jesus in verse 8. And then he says, because of those things, verse 9, God has highly exalted him, super exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying here is that there's going to be a day when every knee, whether under the earth or on the earth or above the earth, bows in worship before Jesus because we realize that he's been given the name that it's above every name. We realize that he's the one who is truly awesome and that we are not awesome in any way. He, we will realize in that moment, in that certain future moment, that Jesus and Jesus alone is glorious. Right? I mean, there's going to be no, no proud person gathered around the throne of Christ for eternity. But there's no one who's going to gather around the throne of Christ for eternity and to hear his name that's above every name and to bow knee before him and to do that in pride. It's just not going to happen. We will gather around that throne in abject, perfect, perpetual humility. Because in that moment we will realize that only Jesus is awesome. And so as we fight for humility now, we fight to rightly situate our awe by thinking on and meditating on the glory of Jesus. Friends, the early church turned the world upside down in the way that they were unified through humility because of the gospel. May we as well pursue humility so that we can pursue unity and testify to the power of the gospel in a divided and contentious age. Pray with me. Jesus, we pray that you would make us a band of natural-born enemies who love one another for your sake. We pray that in our relationships with one another, we would testify mightily to the power of your gospel because of how we love and are unified with one another. We thank you for that gospel, for its invisible power that is made visible through your church. And we pray that you be glorified in us as we pursue unity and humility together. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.